morning, everyone. So we are reading from 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1 to 25. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people, but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I'd rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be edified. (coughs) Now, brothers and sisters, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I am a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker is a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray pray, (laughs) um, that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you are praising God in the spirit, how can someone else, who is now put in the position of an inquirer, say amen to your thanksgiving, since they do not know what you are saying? You are giving thanks well enough, but no one else is, is edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in the church I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers and sisters, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquiries or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Thanks, Sam. Let me just start this. Uh, Thanks for reading that, uh, Sam. Um, Apologies if I uh, cough and splatter through this. Uh, I've done many a COVID test and it's not COVID. Um, I have probably the worst disease you can possibly have at the moment, which is to have a persistent cough, but not COVID. Uh, But uh, excuse me if I uh, uh, need to sip water as we go through. Uh, Before we begin, uh, let us spray. That's for you. (laughs) And... um, 
then uh, we'll begin. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And as we look through this uh, uh, interesting chapter now, we pray that you'd help us uh, think through how it applies to us, uh, how it glorifies you, and how we can serve you better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> well, uh, this is uh, really part three of a four-part sermon mini-series within the big picture of 1 Corinthians. You can't really separate chapter 12, 13, and 14 from each other. Uh, we have so that we can get through uh, some of the material and, uh, as we go, but um, they, are, uh, they are all sort of intimately linked. So I want to start first with uh, a, a couple of clarifications, an apology, and a recap, uh, which for some reason made me think of four weddings and a funeral, which is our first... <laughs> First point. Have you got slides there? Are they on there? They might not be. I'm going to make Emily work really hard now. You're going to have to listen and click all at the right time. Is it? Are you winning? No, you're not winning. They might not be there. One second. There we go. Sorry, the main point is the one in brackets. Uh, clarification one. Um, uh, the Holy Spirit is at work today. Uh, I think two weeks ago when I preached on chapter 12, uh, some heard uh, a few things that I, I hope I didn't say, uh, but perhaps I didn't make very clear. Uh, more specifically, I hope you didn't hear me say that the work of the Holy Spirit has ended uh, and that we no longer expect the Holy Spirit to work in supernatural uh, ways in lives and within our church. Uh, I did argue that individualistic charismatic giftings uh, and elements of the Spirit's work were for a specific time, but I think, uh, as you'll hear today, I think you'll be surprised to hear how much I credit to the work of the Holy Spirit today. So we'll correct that balance a little bit today. Uh, second one, the apology. Uh, James was an early book. Uh, my other apology uh, was simply a mistake in my research. I told you that James was one of the later books in the New Testament, uh, and therefore, because the elders prayed for healing uh, rather than uh, call for the gifted healer, I suggested that perhaps even in the New Testament times, the gifts were disappearing from the early church times. I couldn't have actually been more wrong. James was actually one of the earliest New Testament books written uh, uh, but it was, more, it was quite possibly transcribed or uh, reproduced much later than the other books, hence my mistake. Uh, so my argument on that front wasn't correct, so my apologies. Uh, it doesn't change my view uh, or our practice as a church, uh, but, but in case that was the one thing you were holding on to, uh, to understand what I said, you're going to have to listen to the sermon again and listen to some other bits as well. Uh, the second clarification, uh, faithful believers can hold different views. Uh, I gave the impression, I think, that there were no other firmly held convictions or, uh, about charismatic gifts, gifts within our church. Uh, that's not even the case amongst the elders. So I just wanted to clarify uh, that. Uh, the view I gave was the one that encourages us in the practice that we practice as a church. That, that is the theology behind why we behave like we do as a church. But it doesn't uh, mean we can outright dismiss uh, anyone else. Uh, outside our church, there are many convictions uh, that I think all of us would unanimously agree to be dangerous. There, there is an extreme. Uh, there's plenty of warnings in the New Testament about false prophets and teachers who will deceive many with signs and wonders. Uh, but there are also many biblically sound and wise Christians and churches who believe that the gifts continue. 
uh, but who listen very carefully to what Paul says in these chapters, for example, and to the corrections he gives to the Corinthians. And so they practice them very carefully. Uh, I count them, uh, and you, if that's you here today, as true brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, The instructions in chapter 13, in fact, to show love must come before these things. So we may disagree on some things uh, that are important, but love must come first uh, in these things. Uh, Much like we might hold different views on on various things, on baptism and so forth. But we're totally united in Jesus. Uh, And uh, we are actually a better church because of that variance Uh, as Paul gives that illustration of the body in chapter 12. Uh, We all have different roles. Um, So even if, uh, but I also want to acknowledge it it will sometimes be hard if you hold a different view about the gifts and you're in a church where we don't practice them. uh, That's going to be hard for you at times and I wanted to acknowledge that as well but also say we love having you with us and it's okay uh, to have some different views. Uh, So that's my two clarifications and apology. Uh, Finally, a recap, because uh, if you missed chapter 12, uh, then you'll need to just briefly be caught up to speed so that we, because it it affects how we interpret this passage today. So in short, from chapter 12, we considered how uh, some gifts appeared to be for uh, only for the New Testament times until the Bible was completed uh, or available. Uh, And in Ephesians, Paul uh, appears to recognise that there was some kind of special foundational purpose to the gift of prophecy and apostleship. So uh, this is Ephesians 2.19 on the screen. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on, so this is what the church is built on, the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a cornerstone. Uh, the, the illustration being, isn't it, that foundations are laid once and always relied on, uh, and so we don't keep building foundations. We now build something different. We build the church. Uh, in chapter 3 of Ephesians, Paul explains how the work of the apostles and the prophets reveal the mystery of Christ to us. So here's 3, verse 4 and 5. In reading this then, so the letter he's writing, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to people in other generations, so this is a new thing happening for this generation, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Uh, So just as the gift of apostleship has ended, uh, which I think we should all be able to agree on, uh, the New Testament's quite clear about that, um, Ephesians suggests that in the same way, uh, some, some, in some way, the gift of a prophecy uh, has also ended. Its foundational work is no longer required. Uh, it makes sense then that in a church like Corinth uh, that is reliant on the odd letter or the odd visit from an apostle, because they don't yet have the completed Bible, uh, also required re- uh, prophets to reveal mysteries that we saw in Ephesians 3 there, uh, through knowledge and wisdom and insight, both about God uh, and presumably about each other as they build the church on those foundations that they're they're creating. For us, though, uh, we have all of that, those foundations, encapsulated in the word of God. So back to the context of Corinth, uh, it's not surprising when we get Paul saying, chapter 14, verse 1 in our passage today, Follow the way of love. So that's the big picture from chapter 13. 
and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, so don't deny the gifts of the Spirit that he's talked about in chapter 12, especially prophecy, because that's the foundation that is going to build the church. And then uh, the end of chapter 14, we're not, we, I've got to refer to a few verses, not in our reading today, just because it will help us. Uh, Uh, 1439 if you've got your bible just flick down there therefore my brothers and sisters be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues Uh, paul's big point in this chapter is that they should seek the gifts that most build the church not oneself build the church not yourself is his big message And the most edifying and building up gift available to them at that time was prophecy. It's a a significant and very important gift for them. Uh, But sadly, the Corinthians, all they seem to be interested in, as we read through this chapter, it becomes more and more clear. All they're really interested in is gifts that focuses on themselves, that make themselves look super spiritual and wonderful, the gift of tongues. That's the other one he focuses in on this chapter. It makes them sort of look special or or unique, separates them a little bit from other people in the church. Uh, So to understand this chapter a bit, we're going to consider three things. The first one is what is prophecy, then we'll look at what is tongues in this chapter, and then we'll look at uh, what that means for us. And I'm just going to have a sip of water, sorry. So what is prophecy? Uh, Paul, I think, gives us a number of clues as to what prophecy achieves and what prophecy is in this chapter. So first of all, uh, not what it does, but what does it achieve? Verse 3, he gives us a a few words. He says, prophecy strengthens, it encourages, and it comforts. And then verse 4, prophecy also edifies. In other words, it does good for the church. It builds it up. That's where we get the word build up from, to edify Uh, So that's what it does. Uh, That's what it achieves. Verse 6 gives us uh, a clue, though, as to what prophecy actually was or is. So Paul uses various words uh, in verse 6 that he often interchanges around this use of uh, the word prophecy. So in verse 6, he talks about, uh, he says, if you give me tongues, it's of no help to the church. But if you give me prophecy, effectively, you give me revelation, uh, which presumably is something previously unknown and and freshly revealed, uh, probably about God himself. Then he talks about knowledge, uh, similar to revelation, I think, uh, but might include a greater sort of understanding of uh, something previously they were confused about. Um, uh, or perhaps more likely, as we'll see in later verses uh, of this chapter, uh, knowledge about a specific situation or a specific person that couldn't have been known without God's revelation. <clears throat> uh, then he uses the word prophecy itself. Uh, uh, most likely, he's meaning by that just the ability to predict the future. That's what prophecy, in a sense, means, uh, but it, it's a, there's a wider understanding of it. That's why he's dividing it out in these words here. So they predict something in the future. We see quite a lot of that in Acts um, amongst the apostles and some, some others around that, where they, they're able to predict what's going to happen in the future for the sake of building up the church. And then he uses the word instruction. In, uh, in other words, God-given instruction for the church or individual. So, so it requires a sense of action. Something's, we've got to respond to this. We've got to do something differently to what we're doing <clears throat> already. It's, it's therefore quite significant and important. I hope you see that. It's an important gift 
Um, <clears throat> if certainly if you don't have the New Testament complete, which we're told is sufficient for all good works today. Uh, you can see some examples of what Paul is describing uh, later on in verses 24 and 25. Have a look at that. Uh, I'm going to read it now. And here he applies this gift to the, to the use of evangelism. So verse 24, if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they are convicted of sin and they are brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. <clears throat> Secrets, revelations, exhortations, instructions that result in a powerful response to God's, uh, to what has been heard from the prophecy. Secrets of the heart laid bare for the whole church to hear. It's quite a gift. Uh, Paul also sees the risk, though, um, we're still defining prophecy in Corinthians here, he also sees the risk of abuse, uh, uh, of using such a gift. Uh, and so he gives some instructions for how we ought to manage it carefully uh, in the Corinthian church in verses 29. So have a look at verses 29 to 32. I know this is just outside our reading, but it helps us uh, define it here. So two or three prophets should speak. They're, they're expecting, it's an instruction. When he talks about tongues, he said, if someone speaks in tongues, make sure this and that happens. We'll come on to that. But when it comes to prophecy in the Corinthian church, there's an expectation this should happen every week. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. Uh, for you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. We've looked at those words before. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. <coughs> so prophecy, uh, we get a few things out of those verses. Prophecy is to be uh, orderly and controlled. It's not wacky. Everyone's in control of what they're doing. Some people are not going to be able to share. Uh, it's, it's, it's sensible. It's ordered. Uh, and we also get a sense that it needs to be weighed. We need to be careful about what's happening. Uh, possibly, Paul means the prophet themselves needs to be weighed, just to check whether they need to go on a diet. No, uh, to check whether they're a true or a false prophet. That was a Tim Guest joke. I feel, I should, feel there should have been more laughter there. Um, so they may have been weighing the prophet. Is he, is he a true prophet or a false prophet? Do we listen to him always? Do we never listen to him? Uh, or it's possible uh, that they're weighing the prophecy each time. Uh, <clears throat> I've lost my notes. Shouldn't, shouldn't have a cold when you preach. Uh, that's, and then the other thing to say is when they're weighing, it seems to me that the people doing the weighing are the other prophets. That's why he says... Uh, the spirit of prophets, not the Holy Spirit, but the individual spirit of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. So it seems like prophets are weighing each other's prophecies or other prophets as they rise up. So you get the picture, though, of what prophecy was in Corinth. Uh, prophecy would make known what was previously unknown or unknowable. Uh, about a specific situation within the church. Uh, it, may, it, it may have led to action or fresh revelation or insights or conviction or conversion. And then other prophets were presumably, presumably would use their own prophetic gift uh, or similar to determine that if the church was to act or respond to those prophecies, or whether that be in praise or repentance or action. 
in other words, it has a significant impact on the congregation at the time, for the, so that the church is built up. Uh, now, many of us here and many excellent churches uh, read much less significance into what prophecy is in this chapter. Uh, which I think is hard to do. I, I hope I've tried to show you that prophecy was a, a significant thing. It, it did extraordinary things at that time. But if your view of prophecy today is much less significant than that, uh, in other words, you still expect to see the gift of prophecy today, uh, but with a much lower level of expectation of what it perhaps was then, uh, then that's important because it actually means our practice in Christianity and in the way we do church is probably actually very similar. Uh, so some would call knowledgeably applying, I can't even say some of these words, so knowledgeably applying uh, the Bible to the church, they would call that prophecy or, or wise understanding of someone's circumstances or, or their concerns and perhaps directing them to the Bible or to a particular passage or verse or perhaps just offering practical help, they'd see that as prophecy or an insightful observance and prayer for someone's situation or a sense that we should pray or do something at a particular time. Uh, we might, some might say that's prophecy, and I'd say to that, amen. That is what the Holy Spirit enables us all to do. That is exactly his work today to build up the church. Personally, I just don't call it prophecy. But if that's your understanding, then our practice is actually very much aligned. Uh, I'd call it the work of the Holy Spirit through the word of Christ, empowering every believer to build up the body of Christ. Uh, Colossians uh, 3.16 describes this kind of universal work of the Spirit in all of our lives. Uh, Paul again writes there, Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms and hymns and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. All of that, if you like, is supernatural. It, it is all, if you like, miraculous in the sense that none of that could or would happen without the power of the Spirit being at work in each of us. I'm, I'm not convinced it aligns with the gift of prophecy in Corinth, hence uh, my teaching on chapter 12 and today. Uh, but it is what the Spirit does in our church uh, each and every week. So when you feel overwhelmed to pray for someone, when you feel convicted or built up or encouraged by God's word being taught, when you choose to obey Christ rather than to give in to sin, when we speak of Jesus to a colleague, when we're praying for someone to be healed, when we speak to a friend after the service and share a Bible verse or remind them of God's love, or we direct them to a helpful passage to reflect on in the week during a tough time, when someone up the front is interviewed and something they say touches our heart and restores our faith, when we pray for someone uh, and for their faith, all of that can only be a work of the supernatural Holy Spirit in our lives. Some call that prophetic ministry or gifting. I call it, let's be doing it more. So uh, that's uh, what I think t uh, prophecy was in uh, Corinthians. Uh, I hope that's helped you understand our practice uh, here as a church, not denying the work of spirit, but uh, just saying we don't see that particular gifting happening here today. Uh, the second one then is, uh, what is tongues? <clears throat> uh, tongues, verse 5, is also supposed to edify in verse 5. Uh, that's why he says there must be an interpretation 
In other words, tongues, once interpreted, as you read through this chapter, is probably very similar to prophecy. Very similar things going on when someone speaks in tongues. If it's interpreted, then it looks very similar to prophecy. Uh, just spoken in a different language uh, rather than in the native tongue of the church. Uh, in fact, Paul, though, is fairly scathing of the use of tongues in church unless uh, there is interpretations. Have a look at verse 7 to 9, for example. He actually spends most of his time on this issue. So verse 7, even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the pipe or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, how will anyone get ready for battle? In other words, it's just noise, or it does nothing practical if it's, people don't know what they're meant to do with it. Unless you speak, he carries on, intelligible, sorry, intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you are saying? You will just be speaking into the air. So unless it's interpreted, it's pointless in church, says Paul. Uh, so he asked those who speak in tongues uh, to also desire the gift of interpretation. Otherwise, what you've got is of no use to the church, he says. Uh, verse 21 uh, adds a bit more detail. It sounds a bit confusing at first, but uh, I think there's a clear explanation. So verse 21 to 23, uh, he quotes the Old Testament. He says, In the law it is written, with other tongues and through the lips of foreigners, <clears throat> I will speak to this people. But even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues, then, are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is not for unbelievers, but for believers. <clears throat> if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and an inquirer or unbeliever comes in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? He makes a reasonable point. Uh, he, he sounds though, a little bit like he's contradicting himself in this passage as, as you read it through, though, because he goes on to uh, almost say the opposite, that uh, tongues are for believers and prophecy for unbelievers and vice versa. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, a little bit of context helps us. The quote he uses from Isaiah uh, is effectively a judgment on the people of Israel because they are disobeying God. So they're disobeying God, and so they get a, they get a prophetic warning. And they're told that the Assyrian army will come in and invade. And even though there will be foreign tongues, foreign languages, the, the Assyrians speaking around them and invading and taking over, the point in Isaiah is that they still won't repent. They will hear something they don't understand, a foreign language, an enemy is here, and they're still not going to repent. So in that sense, he says, tongues is a warning uh, for, <clears throat> for them. Uh, Paul says that uninterpreted tongues is a warning or a reminder against unbelievers that they still won't repent even in the face of God's righteous judgment. It's quite harsh, isn't it? If you're not a believer and you come into church and everyone's out of their minds talking something you don't understand, that is God's reminder that you're still not going to be able to repent because you don't know what's going on. His point is actually, that's not a good thing. Uh, if you're with us today and you uh, found us talking in uh, foreign languages, you, you'd think we'd lost the plot. You might think that anyway, but that's all right. But that is not Paul's aim for the church. Our aim as a church, his aim for the church, was to ask anyone who didn't believe 
to come and join us, to come in and to repent like us before the Almighty God so that we may gain life itself and joy itself as we receive the grace and forgiveness of Jesus. And how is anyone going to do that if what we do doesn't make sense when people come in? So uh, Paul says to Corinth, uh, you might think you sound impressive and super spiritual by speaking like this, but you're not building up the church and you're not saving the lost who need Jesus. And he says, doesn't he, uh, uh, sorry, I lost the verse, he says, I'd rather speak five intelligible words than 10,000 in an unintelligible one. Uh, 10,000 was the, the, it's the biggest number in, uh, in uh, their language. In, uh, it's like saying infinity. I'd rather speak endless words. Uh, sorry, I'd not rather speak endless words in tongues than just five intelligible ones. Perhaps he was thinking, Jesus is Lord. Let's repent. I realise they're used in a apostrophe. That makes it six, but... <laughs> They are great words to say. That's what he told us. If you're able to say those words, you have the Spirit. That was the message at the beginning of chapter 12. Jesus is Lord. Let's repent. Let's say that rather than confuse people with other things. Uh, Interestingly, the place in the New Testament that tongues is useful, the reason I think the gift exists, uh, was so that foreigners present could actually hear the gospel taught in their language. Uh, So you can uh, look uh, to Acts, I think it's on the screen, Acts 2, 7 and 8. uh, Pentecost, the apostles receive the Spirit and they speak in tongues, foreign languages. And this is what happens. Utterly amazed, there's people looking in, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How are these Galileans speaking our language? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? It happens again in chapter 10 of Acts when uh, the Gentiles first receive the Holy Spirit and they do the same. And it's almost like a reversal. Suddenly the, the uh, Israelites, the Jews, are hearing the, the Gentiles speaking in their language, it seems. So the Bible seems clear that tongues is a gift of speaking foreign languages. Um, so unless you're using it to... <clears throat> Uh, speak to those who understand. It's not for the gathered church use, uh, even in Corinth, Paul says. Uh, now, I'm aware that uh, some of us don't agree with that. Um, uh, some take uh, verse 1 of chapter 13 uh, to suggest that tongues could be a heavenly language, a sort of angelic language. Uh, but I, I think it's worth pointing out, I think Paul's saying, uh, I think that early part of 13 actually suggests the opposite Uh, so have a look at verse 13 sorry chapter 13 verse 1 and 3 Paul says if I speak in the tongues of men or even of angels there's a suggestion that that's the extreme but do not have love I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal Uh, let me give you an example the the others become even clearer that he's making an extreme case Uh, so uh, if I have the gift of prophecy and can even fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. Obviously, no one can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge. We don't expect to read that into that section of the verse. Uh, Or if I have a faith that can move mountains, a turn of phrase at the time that meant to do the impossible. So again, he's not literally suggesting they can move mountains. Um, uh, But do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess, which again, no one can give all they possess, otherwise they'll be the ones in need. They'll have to, we give what we can. Uh, So you get the idea that uh, verse 1, suggesting that you can speak in an angelic language, seems to be Paul saying, 
that is the thing you can't do. But even if you could, if you did it without love, it would be nothing. Uh, So I'd say those verses actually uh, more strongly suggest that uh, speaking in foreign languages is the most likely interpretation from the New Testament uh, of what tongues is. Uh, I will say I don't think that means if you do or have uh, or know people that practice speaking in an unintelligible tongue, uh, that I don't think that means you're a nutcase, um, just to be clear. Uh, I would be cautious about it, uh, if I'm honest. Uh, I, I would be careful about why we use it. Uh, Paul seems very clear it's for the benefit of building up the church in this chapter. Um, and if we're not able to use it for that, uh, I'd be very cautious of it. I'd certainly be cautious of uh, relying on it for confirming our faith or for making us feel closer to God. Um, when Paul says, uh, even our mind is unengaged when we're speaking in tongues, uh, what's important is that we as a whole body know what we're doing. Um, please uh, do chat to me more if you want to think more about that uh, later. So, Uh, That is what uh, prophecy seems to be in Corinthians. That is what tongue seems to be in Corinthians. Very quickly to to finish. What's Paul's point for us today then? You'll be glad to know it's quite a short one. Uh, His big point for the Corinthians is prophecy builds up the church. Tongues does not. So seek the gift that builds up the church. And clearly... um, Uh, clearly building up the church includes a strong emphasis on evangelism. That's why he puts those verses in at the end. And his point is, why wouldn't you want to seek the gifts and do what most builds up the church? Because that is what love looks like, that whole chapter of 13 of what love is. So in our context, I think it will mean different things at different times. What does it look like to seek what will most build up the church? Perhaps uh, more of us need to pray and ask the Spirit to improve our Bible knowledge and our Bible reading so that we can edify others better when we chat after the service or or in our home groups. It might mean more of us should seek to be able to be Bible teachers, to aspire and to pray to be home group leaders or youth leaders or preachers or elders, Uh, not to aspire to look good, but to aspire out of love for others. For we know we all need to hear the truth of God. Uh, practically, it will mean we want to pray that we're humble enough to fill in gaps uh, on rotors or, or where things are lacking in our church. That's what Paul seems to be saying. The best thing to build up is prophecy. So if there's a gap, fill it. If we don't have enough stewards, for example, the best way to love your church is to uh, pray for more muscle and uh, sign up for stewarding. It might mean praying that we're more bold to speak to new people at church, to share the gospel if they don't know it. Uh, But I want to finish by saying that uh, uh, so many of us already do so much. uh, And so many of us do so much that helps grow our church in, in faith and in trust. And that is a good thing. And so I think as we read these chapters, uh, not only ought we just to think, yeah, am I, uh, could I be serving a bit more? Could I be praying for, could I be aspiring to, to lead differently in the church, whatever it might be. But equally, we ought to be overjoyed that we're part of a spirit-empowered church that loves each other and puts Jesus first. So uh, that's where I want to leave it today. Let me pray. Father, we thank you. <coughs> Sorry. Father, we thank you that uh, we are a church who, by your Spirit, is able to say Jesus is Lord.
who by your spirit has been empowered each one of us to build one another up as we seek to edify each other and to uh, bring the gospel to bear on the lives of those that don't yet believe. We pray that you would build us up more, that you'd help us to be humble and to find where we can build up and love and serve others more. We pray that more of us would take your words more and more seriously so that we can, uh, it seems to me that's one of the, the greatest ways to serve and love others, to support each other in your word. We pray that you would uh, remind us of these great truths. Pray that you'd be at work in our hearts by your spirit. We pray that you'd build us up and we give you thanks for all you've done for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.